I'm Leanne. Welcome to Strippers and Stages, a podcast that explores sex and eroticism through the lenses of art, culture, politics, spirituality, and racial justice. Hello, Strippers and Stages. Leanne here. So much to celebrate this week. I hope that you are all staying safe and dancing in the streets. We are taking an ever-so-brief hiatus from our regular conversation series. We will return with that next week. And instead of an interview this week, I am going to share with you a piece that I wrote and performed at an erotic performance event called The Fire Within, an event series that I was co-producing in the Bay Area back in the days when we could all get super saucy in an enclosed space. Back in the day when we could touch other humans. Um, may those days return soon. And so this is a piece about, about one of my very earliest sexual encounters, if you could call it that, and a bit of a linguistic philosophy about the importance of choosing wise language and beautiful language when we refer to our own erotic selves and erotic lives. That's all I'll say on that. The piece uh, speaks for itself. So give it a listen. It's a short little vignette. And with it, I would love to extend an invitation to you, our listeners, to send in any of your own writing, poetry, erotica, also to share your stories. We do have our upcoming Street Talk series. So we are looking to just talk to all kinds of people about their sex lives because why else have a podcast? So without further ado, I bring you, well, this doesn't really have a title. I've, I've labeled it sexy writing performance uh, in my in my Google Doc. So that's what it'll be. That's what it shall live as. When I was 14, a boy who liked my friend but settled for me tried to jam his fingers inside me. There was a blizzard outside, the lights were off, and my parents were home. Nothing says romance like your father audibly complaining about his hemorrhoids in the next room. I liked this boy. I was flattered by and greedy for his attention, even though the truest part of me knew I was not being honored in return. We sat next to each other on the couch in my parents' living room and stared at the TV screen in front of us to avoid staring at each other, barely touching until he, to his credit, bravely initiated contact with his hands, and I, to my credit, upped the ante by straddling him, a move I must have learned from Beverly Hills 90210, a show that my mother, to her credit, forbade me to watch because of its highly sexualized content. The show featured adult actors who, I suppose to their credit, were masquerading as teenagers— And it was unrealistic not only because it featured a cast of adult supermodels, but also because it portrayed these alleged teenagers as sexual superstars. Their mature libidos and passionate affairs seemed a far cry from the fumbling dealings of adolescent courtship at my high school, where boys feigned manhood, their hyper-masculinity as ill-fitting as the baggy pants they wore around their waists. Straddling this boy as he negotiated his hand down my pants and attempted to locate my peach pit, I wondered how these teenagers from Beverly Hills were so savvy when it came to sex, and if their first foray into fondling was as awkward and unpleasant as mine was shaping up to be. All of the sex scenes I'd seen on TV had led me to believe that I was going to dissolve into paroxysms of pleasure immediately upon contact that the boy's magic finger wands would just 
transport me to some otherworldly realm of pleasure and I would just cease to be the young woman that I was. But his fingers were more like dental wands, prodding my soft tissue in preparation for a root canal without the anesthesia. In lieu of transformational ecstasy, I experienced extreme physical discomfort in conjunction with overwhelming anxiety. Of course, it never occurred to me to communicate my discomfort because surely it was my fault, a genital defect perhaps, blocking me from the effortless pleasure I'd seen the supermodels on Beverly Hills experience. And surely this boy, who I assumed had meticulously studied the ins and outs of female pleasure by watching hours and hours of internet pornography, knew more about the inner workings of my inner being than I did. So I might as well defer to his technique. And I might catastrophically alienate or offend him while unbearably humiliating myself if I dared to chastise his skills. And so I stayed silent, like so many women before me, as he attempted to frack my vaginal walls. His fingers fumbled aggressively around the pristine folds of my blossoming womanhood, which intuitively recoiled from his unintuitive touch. Fortunately, the incident was quick and dirty— Pornography does not teach patience as a prerequisite pleasure. And when he decided that I'd had enough, he slid his hands out of the lacy and supremely uncomfortable panties I'd purchased from Victoria's Secret, my own attempt at signaling some sort of erotic prowess, and we resumed our static positions on the couch, fixing our attention determinately once again on the television. After about 15 wordless minutes... He stood up, walked towards the door, muttered peace over his shoulder, and flashed me a peace sign with the very same fracking fingers that had recently been inside me. When I passed him and his friends in the school hallway later that week, one of them flashed me the same peace sign, then made a show of sniffing his fingers, wrinkling his nose in disgust, and shouting, cunt spunk, while the rest of them snickered. So... Let's talk about cunt spunk, shall we? Words are vital portals to meaning. Many mystics consider language to be the spiritual DNA of reality. The philosopher Wittgenstein posits that the limit of language is the limit of experience. So it's worth considering how the term cunt spunk, when used with the intention to mock and malign, might have limited my experience of and relationship to this fluid produced by my most sacred parts. The more clinical term for cunt spunk is vaginal secretion. Let's break that down etymologically. Vagina is Latin for sheath, which is a close-fitting cover for something, particularly for something that is elongated in shape. Leave it to Latin, the patriarch of the Romance languages, to etymologically assign the vagina the sole serviceable function of protecting the male phallus. Vagina also shares a root with the word vanilla, which is not very exciting, suggesting that female sexuality should be docile and bland rather than wild and ferocious, as is our birthright. Now, let's consider the etymology of the word secretion, which is a bit of a juicy word itself. It may evoke a squeamish, visceral response like the word moist does for some people, 
or an uncomfortable visual like its verbal cousin ooze, which I find both sterile and disgusting. Yet, considered etymologically, there's also something feminine and mysterious about the word secretion, which has a common ancestor with the word secret. In a way, a secretion is a revelation. It's the process through which a clandestine substance reveals itself. Adding an E to the end of secret initiates this process, as secret, a noun, becomes kinesthetic, a verb. Hence, my vaginal secretion is the kinesthetic revelation of my most secret being, a viscous erotic blueprint containing the DNA of my arousal. Sensual language allows for sensual experience. The Encyclopedia of Sacred Sexuality refers to vaginal secretion as divine serum and shares that in various traditions, this divine serum was thought to increase health, longevity, and mental acuity. It was therefore a highly coveted and celebrated substance by all of society. Imagine how different that night on my parents' couch might have felt and unfolded Had I been raised to regard my own vaginal secretion as a sacred elixir worthy of reverence, imagine how differently my irreverent suitor and his pussy-mocking posse might have regarded me if the common vernacular for vaginal secretion were divine serum instead of cunt spunk. Language is culture. Language makes culture. And such language might have signaled me to conceive of my sexuality and its associated fluids as something spectacular rather than something culturally shameful. May all young women at the outset of their sexual journeys be armed with such empowering vernacular. Because to me, what makes sex feel intimate is the shared immersion in intimate sense. Along with arousal, there's a subtle deepening of self-knowledge I experience when I smell myself on another, my nectar dripping from their face, a nectar so secretive it must be coaxed from me with cunning and skill, desire and devotion. That my partner will become more intimately acquainted with my scent than I perhaps ever will is a testament to our existential and olfactory interdependence. Complete self-gnosis is nearly impossible without the passionate kiss of a lover post-cunnilingus. In a universe where, despite our staggering individuality, it is easy to feel redundant, the gorgeous singularity of my vaginal scent confirms the uniqueness of my being. I alone exist to secrete this remarkable erotic nectar, without which the universe would be an infinitesimally less ambrosial place. Years after the couch incident, I was being pleasured in the jungle of Costa Rica next to a waterfall, a significant upgrade in terms of ambiance, by a very sexy man with a beard who just couldn't get enough of me. And after my fifth orgasm, when he emerged from between my legs, his beard glistening, and gave me a deep, wet kiss, I remember thinking, damn, My cunt spunk sure is sweet. If this episode turned you on, consider dropping a five in the ratings, subscribing to the show, and sending it to a friend. You can help us build our audience this way, and we would be so grateful. Special thank you to Liliana Estes for editing this episode. 
Thank you, Casey Odesser and Sasha Carney for their rigorous research and preparation for these conversations and to Ben Euphrat for his continued guidance on this show. Stay sexy, folks. <laughs>